in a new and fresh way, we pray. Amen. Uh, What would you say if somebody asked you the following question? Are good works necessary for salvation? Are good works necessary for salvation? Uh, Brownlow North was a 19th century gentleman uh, born into privilege, but he lived a dissolute life of excess and self-indulgence. Uh, He was heir to the Earl of Guildford and eventually settled in Scotland. Uh, He grew up a heavy drinker and a constant gambler. But one evening, aged 44, he was sitting in the billiard room playing cards and smoking a cigar when suddenly he was struck down with violent pains. Dropping his cigar, he gasped to his sons, I'm a dead man take me upstairs. Uh, He lay groaning on his bed, sure he was about to die. And his first thought was this, now what will my 44 years of following the devices of my own heart profit me? In a few minutes I shall be in hell. And he fell to his knees and he prayed for God to have mercy on him. Well, uh, Brownlow North actually recovered from his illness, but the following months were agonizing ones of spiritual conflict and doubt about his salvation. But then, at last, after six months of stress, late one night, when he could not sleep, he turned back to reading his Bible, and he was reading and studying the book of Romans. And it was then that he realized that Christ had done All that was needed. It was then that he realized that a simple trust in Christ was sufficient for salvation and for life and for health. And finally, he experienced peace and contentment in his heart. It is a wonderful conversion story. Forgiveness of sins and peace with God through simple trust in Christ's death for us. But what we see later was, uh, what we see later in Brownlow's life is that that was not the end of the story, and we'll come to that later. Because what Brownlow did that night was a right response to Christ, but there is more involved in having a right response to Christ. And that is the concern of James in this part of his letter in chapter 2. Uh, our son Elijah is in the process of learning to drive at the moment. Uh, it's an interesting phase of life for all of us. Uh, he's undergoing the transition from being a passive passenger to a hopefully responsible active driver. Uh, and it's now dawning on Elijah that roadsides serve an important purpose. Road signs are important. They do, of course, come in different shapes and sizes. And the yellow diamond signs with black characters or symbols have a particular function. They are warning signs, T-intersection, uneven road ahead, falling rocks. Well, this part of the letter of James is a yellow diamond sign. It's a warning sign, and it's warning that there are two types of faith. There is a true living faith, but there also is a false dead faith. And the question is, which one do we have? 
So firstly, in uh, verses 14 to 20, the danger of a dead faith. Uh, The passage begins with a question. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? What answer would you give? Uh, Some of us may answer yes. Uh, Yes, you can be saved without works. Uh, Wasn't that, of course, the slogan of the Reformation? Uh, Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. But the answer, interestingly, that James is assuming is, no, you can't be. It may be for some of us this passage will require some adjustment to our framework of understanding. Uh, That question, uh, what good is it, comes up again at the end of verse 16. Such a faith is no good at all. Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. It leaves a person condemned on judgment day. And the theme of judgment, of course, was where the passage ended uh, back in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. So what James is dealing with here is the person who professes faith, says they believe, gives all the right answers, attends church, but there are no good works. Their faith makes no difference to their daily life. It was clearly a problem in the early church, and James is deeply troubled by an attitude to faith which sees it mainly as a verbal profession, just words. And he goes on to unpack what this might look like. Uh, He gives an example in verse 15. Verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? The scenario is that there's somebody in the church family who is poor, Uh, They're lacking the basic necessities. But other Christians in the congregation just fob them off with polite, friendly words. Uh, Go in peace. Be warm. Be filled. Uh, You could translate it, uh, may you be warm and filled. Uh, Actually, it's like a prayer. Uh, Confronted with this Christian brother or sister in need, this other believer just expresses good wishes and says, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. What good is that? Well, on its own, uh, none at all. It's no good to the person in need. It's no good to the person professing faith. Uh, Someone is ill or hard up, financially or lonely, and the response is just, well, we'll pray for you. Uh, In a previous church, uh, I was visiting an old man whose wife had died the year before. And now, he wasn't an easy man to get along with, but by this stage, he was a broken man. Uh, He was desperately lonely. And he said this to me, and I quote from memory, people at church assure me that they'll pray for me, but I wish that they'd just come round and have a cup of coffee with me. But of course, that takes time, and that takes effort. It's much easier, of course, just to say, I'll pray for you. And sometimes we do pray and sometimes we forget to even do that. 
Now, of course, prayer is important, but a faith which never goes beyond that is no good to anyone. Recall, of course, the Good Samaritan. Uh, He didn't just say he'd pray for the man who'd been mugged. He gave first aid, he drove him to the hospital, and paid for his treatment. Now, the example that James chooses here is significant. Uh, If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, caring for the needy was one of the three hallmarks of true Christianity. And the first half of chapter 2 was about this, and it's clearly still on the radar here. A faith which doesn't care in practice for those in need, which doesn't get its hands dirty, which doesn't ever go beyond saying, I'll pray for you, is a faith that is dead. It's no good at all, and it can't save. And so verse 17 concludes, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Imagine a crime scene. Uh, The police arrive to find a body on the floor. Uh, Is the body alive or is it dead? What do they do? They check for the vital signs. They see if there's a pulse. They listen for breathing. Now imagine that the figure on the floor is faith. Is it dead or is it alive? What are the vital signs? James says, check, not the pulse, not the breathing. Check for good works. If there are no good works, if there's no practical action, it's dead. And so we don't miss the point. Uh, It's restated at the end of the section in verse 26. Uh, Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So you see, uh, it is not just enough to say that we have faith. Uh, Verse 18, uh, James imagines somebody objecting to this. Uh, Verse 18, he says this. But someone will say, uh, you have faith, I have deeds. Uh, The idea seems to be that uh, faith and works are seen as separate gifts. Uh, You've got faith, uh, I've got the works. Now, the idea of faith and works as separate gifts may seem at first an odd idea, but it may be closer to home than we think. As evangelicals, we can be quite dismissive of liberal churches that have lost the gospel. Uh, Often, they are reduced to nothing more than social action institutions. Acts of care become their primary focus. However, as evangelicals, are we in danger of falling off the other side of the horse? Uh, We're very concerned to hold to orthodox teaching and belief, but is it sometimes at the expense of social concern? Look at James' response in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. That's that's the the anticipated uh, objection. But here is James' response. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. How can you possibly prove that you've got faith unless there are works to show for it? If I'm somebody who claims to have faith, James would say, prove it, show me your 
faith. How can we prove it? What would you play uh, on to respond to that, that charge? Would we play the card of orthodox belief? Well, I believe in God. I believe in the gospel. I believe in Jesus. Look at how James responds to that in verse 19. Uh, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. A faith without works is no better than the faith that demons have. Uh, do the devils and the do the devil and the demons believe in God? Yes, they do. They believe he exists. They believe he is the creator. They know without any doubt that is true. Do they believe in Jesus? Well, of course, they acknowledge who he is. And that was evidence repeatedly throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. Sadly, demons are often more orthodox than some church ministers. So why aren't demons saved? Because it's not a true faith which leads to action. They believe certain things to be true because they are undeniable. But there's no follow-through. There's no reorientation of life. There's no changed behavior. Of course, we know that in order to be saved, it is vital that we do believe certain things. And such belief is essential, but such belief in itself is not sufficient. This faith must be lived out. This faith must change us. Otherwise, we are no better than the demons, and we are heading to the same place. Verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So, uh, if we are those who say we believe in Jesus, James is challenging us. Prove it. The question is not, are you a believer or unbeliever? The question is, are you a true believer? Among those who profess faith, there's a living faith and there is a dead faith. Which one do you have? Now, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus as the Son of God who died for my sins and was raised to life. Fine and good, but mere words and mere belief isn't proof. Imagine that you're put on trial accused of having a dead faith. What evidence could you bring in your defense? What witness would you call? Would you have a strong case? What does a living faith look like? And it is this to which James now turns, and he shows us what a living faith looks like. Verses 21 to 26, James gives two examples from the Old Testament of people with a living faith. Uh, he uses a Jewish patriarch and a Gentile prostitute, uh, Abraham and Rahab. Uh, now, you know, news broadcasters will sometimes say there are pictures in our news report which some viewers may find disturbing. Well, I, I feel I should give a similar warning now. There are statements in these next verses which may make some believers disturbed. Verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Uh, he's referring, of course, 
to the incident back in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, This is when Abraham, in obedience to God, was preparing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Of course, God stopped him at the last moment. Uh, Taken on its own, this verse seems to be saying that Abraham was justified, and that is accepted by God purely through that act of obedience, through his works. And of course, we would say, surely this cannot be. If we go to the New Testament letters of Romans and Galatians, uh, Paul's big themes are justification by faith alone, not by works. How on earth can what James say here square with what Paul says in those letters? Uh, In Romans 4, Paul even uses Abraham as an example of someone justified apart from works. So how can James possibly now also use Abraham as an example of someone justified by works? Well, we need to read on in verse 22. He continues. You see that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. So Abraham was a man of faith as Paul emphasizes, but it was a faith that was active. It was not lazy. It was not unproductive. It was not dead. Rather, it was a living faith which expressed itself through works of obedience. It was a faith that was completed by his works. Without works, faith is incomplete. Its vital signs are missing. Abraham's obedient actions in Genesis chapter 22 were linked to and fulfilled a fulfillment of an earlier event. And verse 23 continues. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Uh, That's actually a quote from Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, it records the events some 20 years before the sacrifice of Isaac. I have an image on the screen here of Abraham uh, and the way that his faith operated. Uh, God had taken Abraham out of his tent and told him to look up to the skies. God had promised him descendants as numerous as the stars in the night sky. How did Abraham respond? He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified before God, declared by God to be righteous in his sight. But that declaration by God was fulfilled those 20 years later in Abraham's obedience. His act of obedience showed him to be justified. And in fact, in Genesis 22, after Abraham had bound Isaac on the altar and was about to sacrifice him, God said this, Now I know that you fear God. Now I know. Abraham's faith had been proved. It had been demonstrated. And in that sense, verse 24 is true. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Example number two, uh, Rahab, verse 25. 
In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. It's interesting that in the case of Rahab here, there's not even a mention of faith. Uh, Of course, the question may be posed, does this example suggest that it's possible to be saved by works without any faith at all? We know, of course, we go to Hebrews 11, verse 31, that Rahab is listed there as an example of faith along with Abraham. Faith is essential. Rahab had faith too. But her faith was active, as we see in Joshua chapter 2. It was demonstrated in her hiding the spies and saving their lives at risk of her own. Good works are not an optional extra to faith. They are as essential as breath is to a body. Verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith without works is like a corpse. It is dead. Uh, There is a dead orthodoxy which recites the creed but is never lived out. You see, a living faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. So let's pull the strands together. Uh, We know that we've initially, were declared justified on the basis of faith alone. And yet, if that faith is a living and true faith, it will go on to be demonstrated in works. And so it is in that sense we are justified by faith and works together, faith expressed in works. So now we can see that the Apostle Paul and James are not actually contradicting each other. They're just focusing on different stages of Christian experience in response to different questions. In Romans and Galatians, Paul is addressing the question, how does a person come into relationship with God. And the focus is on the beginning of the Christian life. The Jews, of course, thought it was through observing the law apart from faith in Christ. And response, Paul emphasizes that it is through faith apart from works. And this is what we see with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. But then when we get to James, he is addressing a different question. He is asking, what is the sign that a person has true faith? You see, he's responding to people who claim good works aren't necessary in the Christian life. And so his focus is further down the track. Hence, James is making clear that works are an essential part of true faith. On the screen I have here an image which is the biblical logic of salvation. Uh, Paul is talking about works before conversion. Uh, We cannot be saved through them. And James is talking about works post-conversion. We cannot be saved without them. They are essential fruit of true faith. So, is a person justified by faith alone? Yes and no. Yes, it is through faith in Christ, apart from any works we do, that God accepts us. But no, if that faith does not go on to be demonstrated in works, it is a dead faith which cannot save. 
as Calvin put it in those now well-known words. A person is saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. And that is true whoever we are. Uh, the two examples cited by James trace a vast spectrum all the way from a Jewish patriarch, Abraham, to a Gentile prostitute, Rahab. So if you're somebody here today who is asking, what must I do to be saved? God's word to you is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, ask him to forgive your sins. Put your faith in Christ and his death for you. You can't earn your salvation through doing good or being religious. You are saved by faith alone. But if you take that step, it will and it must lead to a changed life. You're not just signing up for a new set of beliefs. You're actually committing yourself to a new life. The biblical logic is, Good works do not lead to salvation, but salvation must lead to good works. But the main application of this passage is to those of us who already profess faith in Christ. And it's a warning. Uh, some who profess faith in Christ and think they are saved, maybe even some of us here today, have a dead, useless faith which will not save them ultimately from hell. And so it is vital for each of us to ask ourselves this question. Is there evidence in my life of the fruit of faith? After his conversion, uh, Brownlow North was a changed man. Uh, he started visiting sick poor people in their cottages to read the Bible to them. And in his own words, and I quote, he says this, God took Brownlow North from his comfortable seat beside the fire where, we, where he was reading some religious books and crucified him at the bedside of some poor bed-ridden woman. Brownlow went on to share the gospel in the grimy slums behind King's Cross and in time he became Scotland's most popular lay preacher. Why not ask somebody who knows you well? Do they see any evidence of good works in your life? Because it's often easier, of course, to see good works in others. Uh, you yourself may be all too aware of your sins. Ask your spouse. Ask your good friend. Do you see any evidence of a living faith in me? And if you conclude that your evidence points to your faith being dead, what should you do? The answer, of course, is not just do good. It's not just throw yourself into lots of activity and service. Why? Because the root problem is that you don't have a true living faith in Christ. The re remedy is repent and put your trust in Christ for forgiveness. The solution is to pray for the gift of a living faith through God's Spirit who makes you born again and alive to Christ. And then and only then, that new living faith can express itself in acts of love and service to others, to brothers and sisters, both locally and globally. And finally, if there is this fruit in our lives and the lives of others, 
that is something to thank God for because it is a sign of living faith. Isn't it so encouraging when you see believers living out lives of sacrificial service and love in the church family and in their communities? Isn't it a beautiful sign of a living, vital faith? Uh, this week I came across the story recorded in Acts chapter 9 of Dorcas, also called Tabitha, uh, a member of the early New Testament church. And it's interesting that the way that she was described, Acts 9 verse 36. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. Isn't that staggering? Uh, that was how she was remembered. Uh, she was renowned for her good works and her acts of charity. She was so generous and so kind in caring for the needy that when she dies, the church is utterly bereft. And so devastated was the church, we read in chapter 9 of Acts, that they call on the apostle Peter who's nearby and actually he raises her from the dead. Do you feel the attraction of being a Dorcas or the male equivalent, whatever that be, a Dorkai? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be so good and kind that when we die, people actually feel a sense of loss. That our epitaph would be that somebody says they were always doing good and helping the poor. It would be a sign of a life well lived in the service of the Lord and a sign of a life that was pleasing to the Lord. As Ephesians 5 verse 2 says, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May our lives of loving service be pleasing to God. May they be like a fragrant offering rising before him. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this challenging passage, uh, this warning passage, which exhorts us to examine our own heart and life to examine our faith and to reflect on the nature of the faith within. Heavenly Father, we pray that each of us here would have a true living faith which is active, which expresses itself in works of service and deeds of care. Please, we pray, uh, help us to live out our faith in a way which is a pleasing aroma before you, a faith that is accompanied by good works and loving action. And may we do this to your glory and for the furtherance of the gospel, and for the betterment of your church community. Amen.